Welcome back to How They Train. Today, I'm joined by professional endurance coach, Dan Plews. Dan has a PhD in exercise physiology and has coached world-class professional triathletes such as Javier Gomez, Tim Van Berkel, Terenzo Bazzoni, and Jan Van Berkel. He was also a pretty bloody good triathlete himself. Dan, thanks for joining me, mate. Uh, how's everything in your world? No, it's really good. Thanks for having me on, Jack. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. I've, wat- I've watched a few of your, um, listened to a few of your podcasts and I uh, I also like your commentaries on the YouTube channels. I've seen some of your YouTubes, um, you know, where you do the commentary. I actually watched that one the other week where you were commenting on when um, Alistair Brownlee dropped the world at the when he did the climb at the um, in the ITU race a long time ago. Yeah, in Kitsball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kitsball. That's it. Yeah, it's yeah. great. No, so when you asked me, it wasn't when you asked me to come on the show. It was. Um, an easy decision for me. You know what? I've never seen a place like YouTube, like the YouTube comments section. You uh, are, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought I was like uh, being pretty, you know, just informative and didn't really say anything too controversial. And Jesus, people will tell you where you went wrong in the YouTube comments section. Oh man, man. I know that, that and slow twitch, those two together will give you a good hiding for anything that you do. So I don't really, I've never really read the YouTube comments. Um, but yeah, I don't know how these people who make a, their living on YouTube, they must just turn themselves off from all comments at all times, I'm guessing. Oh, if you were someone who had, you know, like a million subscribers on YouTube and, and posted, you know, two, three videos every week, you literally couldn't read those comments. You would, you would, no. you would hate yourself. Yeah, you would. Yeah, yeah. No, but no, it's been good. And I'm, I'm, I am, I'm a fan because uh, you're definitely a student of the sport and you, you know your shit, so to speak. So it's good. Yeah, I, um, I, I guess like... The thing with triathlon media is I, I always feel like it doesn't get covered by people who actually like live and breathe the sport or, or like yeah. there's a very small number of people who live and breathe the sport and, and want to talk about it. It's sort of, I don't know, it's always sort of people who maybe did once upon a time but have, have sort of, you know, drifted away from the sport but are still commentating. And I wish we had a few more, you know, younger people getting involved yeah. in, in the triathlon media side of things and 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 promoting the sport and, and talking about current day athletes and you know current training philosophies and and that sort of thing yeah i, t- I totally agree i mean i mean i have to just listen to some of those Ironman commentaries and they're just some of them are cringeworthy i mean they're not even factual i had um i had one of my athletes racing at the weekend and the commentator kept saying you know chelsea's come you know a top three in the world 70.3 champs and she's just not she hasn't <laughs> so i'm like you know, and just it's just like these fundamental. They just haven't done the backgrounds right, and and I remember even at, um you know Utah when they were saying talking about Braden Curry because like oh. Kiwi Braden and like saying oh he's just enjoying the they were saying oh he's just enjoying his time up front at the moment. I'm like God. Do you not know anything about Braden Curry? I know. Me and Braden, because when I did the, a podcast with Braden after the World Champs, we already went to town on the commentary there for about 15 minutes. Yeah, right. Good, good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's all it's all well and said. I mean, I've never done commentary myself, and I, I, I imagine it is not an easy job commentating for eight hours of, you know, swim, bike, and run. It's got to be pretty t- tricky, but... um. But yeah, no, it's um, it is. It would be good to get. So I mean, the best commentaries are often done by you know new people who are in the sport at the time, right? Right now, so yeah, like Alistair Brownlee on the weekend again. He's done a few Super League things, and and for the sub seven, sub eight uh, hour hour challenge on the weekend when Alistair was commentating that, you sort of hung on to everything he said, and you you felt like he really knew what he was talking about and that should be the normal because it is for every other sport I watch like you know I watch a bit of um, MMA like the UFC or or AFL footy here and 
all of the commentators are people who have done it, you know, very recently. And, and then like maybe a couple of old heads who, who to stay in the game, they have to know what they're talking about because there's so many people who want their job. Whereas I feel like in triathlon, people just don't really want that job because it, it doesn't really exist that job. It's sort of like done by a handful of really old people who, who are just, who are just always been there, but, but really don't love the sport anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely, definitely the case, but Hey, maybe, maybe it'll get better. <laughs> maybe. Hey, um, Tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Um, to give us your background about how you got into the sport and like even just your your history with endurance sport in general, Dan. Um, yeah, okay. So, I mean, I've been um, involved in endurance sport since since forever, really. I did my first swim run event when I was nine years old. My dad was a cyclist and a competitive triathlete. So I've, I really know nothing but triathlon, really. You know, I was a national youth champion. I uh, went to the junior European champions for gb um so yeah i've kind of um always been involved in triathlon always been a very keen um endurance enthusiast so to speak my background is in exercise physiology i've got a phd in exercise physiology 65 peer-reviewed publications in various public um, journals around the world and um yeah and and I, i kind of i've been involved in a lot of different sports in my time like as a physiologist mainly um, but lots of those sports got, did become more coachy. So I worked for the New Zealand rowing team for eight years. I'm still involved with the women's um, Olympic kayak team here in New Zealand. I was a head of physical performance for Emirates Team New Zealand, the America's Cup sailing team. Um, been involved in just cycling. So I coached Hamish Bond to um, third in the Commonwealth Games for the in the time trial. Um, created a cycling team when I lived in Singapore. So, um, I mean, endurance is my thing, but I don't think... I'm not necessarily um, just tied to triathlon. I've done more than that, but you know, triathlon is my passion because that's a sport that I've been involved in as, as an athlete from a, from a young age. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my, my, my main background. And now I still do a lot of research. I supervise PhD students, master's students. Um, as, as we go along, I'm a researcher at the university just here in Auckland. So at the sort of harder things, do you consider yourself a coach or do you consider yourself an exercise physiologist? Um, I think I think I consider myself not I don't think they're really mutually exclusive, really. I think I think I'm both, really. Um <laughs> to, to not answer the question. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I think um I guess my background is more um physiologist, but I think I've become now I would consider myself probably more I'm definitely going more towards the coaching I, I think um yeah but I, I just think that they're just, they're just so intertwined right it's difficult to pull them apart it's like asking the question is you know art and science right well coaching is, is it an art or a science but I think um I mean I'm, I'm still I still actively involved in but in both right? I coach I coach athletes and I still publish papers you know, published research papers. So I think, um, and I, and even in my in my role with the women's kayak team, that's not a coaching role. That's purely an exercise physiologist role. So you know, I'm testing, and I'm, you know, I just test and work with the training data and and communicate with the coach. So, you know, in I have, in all aspects of what I do, I I have I have different th- periods where I'm you know very academic, very exercise physiologist applied and other parts is just pure coach, right? So, but I guess the coaching always pulls in a lot of exercise physiology. And then, and then I guess like a really broad question that I have, and it, I, it's like, it's one of those questions that always is quite hard to answer, but I still think is, is really interesting is, 
What do you think are like the core principles or, or philosophies that make Dan Plew's training, Dan Plew's training? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think my, my coaching has just changed over time. And if you ask me what's my coaching philosophy, I think it changes like the way I, I think about all my athletes, um, you know, the way I behave and treat them all is all di- quite different. So it's hard to say that I just have an overarching um, philosophy, but I, I, I do the way I coach. I, I don't like to take guesses. You know, I don't I don't like to take chances. I like I like as much if there's information available. I want that information seen. I want that inv- information made available to me. So I'm not um, I know what I'm dealing with and I can actually make more um, more. I can be more certain in the decisions I make make based on data rather than just kind of going going with it on a, on a gut feeling. Um, gut feeling's fine, but I'd like my gut feeling to be backed up with data at the same time. And who are the who are the athletes that you're coaching at the moment? The pros I coach at the moment is um, Javier Gomez, um, Chelsea Sodaro, um, Pablo De Pina, and um, Jan van Berkel. How did the um, how did the relationship with Javier Gomez start? Because that's that's pretty crazy. Like Javier hasn't had many coaches in his career, and he's a five time ITU World Champion. He's a two time Ironman seventy point three World Champion. I'm actually. I'm actually working on a new YouTube video at the moment, which is the top five greatest triathletes of all time. And, and I'm, I can't decide whether to, to put him in there or not. He's, he's one of those guys who could be number four or five. Like that's how good he is. He's one of the, one of the best ever. Yeah, put him in there. I mean, I think he's one of the most consistent performers. Isn't he the one? Well, he used to be the most, if that's a word, the most winningest um, triathlete of all time and on the ITU circuit, at yeah. least, I, I think. He, he still um, is, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's, um, I mean, yeah, that's pretty impressive. So, I mean, the relationship just came about because he was looking for a coach and he was specifically looking for someone to help him make that transition from short course to long course. And I guess my reputation is that I'm a, I, you know, I'm, I'm more specialized in the long course triathlon than the short course. So um, yeah, we, he, he spoke to Greg Bennett and Greg Bennett we recommended me as one of the people he should talk to. And um, yeah, and we connected and we just talked and that, that was that really. And then we got off, we got along really well. And, um, and I, I fully believe that I could help him to get to where he wanted to get to. And um, hopefully we're still going to see that at some point. <laughs> we've, had a bit, we've had a bit of a rough start to be fair. Yeah, let's, let's dive into that a little bit more because it must be quite a crazy experience for you having someone that good who um, just, just randomly gets in contact with you for you to start helping them. Like it, 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 like for me, I know like no matter how good I was, I would feel like an imposter in that situation. If Javier Gomez was like, Hey, can you help me? You're like, well, probably, but like at the same time, I would be super intimidated by it. Um, if I was you. So when you, when he comes in and talks to you or gets in contact with you, how does that, how did that all actually unfold? Like take us right inside it. Oh God, how can I, t- how, how did it actually unfold? I mean, I don't think I really feel in, felt intimidated. I, I felt definitely excited. Um, but I don't know whether, I mean, to me, I just see everything quite systematically all the time. So, you know, I, I think that if I, if I can get a good picture of what the athlete looks like and I kind of can understand the performance gap, I can then make the right changes in the coaching. So, I mean, no matter who they are, my my main concern when you work with anyone like that is that they're they're quite stuck in the ways, for want of a better word, that they don't 
you know, they don't really want to, they're looking for a coach, but they've been doing it so long. They've had so much set success. They're really not looking for a coach. They're just looking for someone to, to be by their side. And really they want to do things the way they want to do them. But Javier, you know, uh, and Javier definitely wasn't that way at all. He was ready to really start trying new things. And, um, you know, one of the things he says is, you know, is it towards the end of his career and he can't afford to, um, you know, make take any chances, right? He can't afford to have any guesses. He needs quite a approach that's quite measured. And um, and that's what we talked about, you know? So, um, and I think, yeah, and, we, and that, that, I mean, it's, that's really all there is to it. I mean, the, we started off like, what was I do with any athletes? I'll just kind of do a lot of measurements and kind of see where they're at and try and understand where the performance gaps are in terms of their physiology and then um, and then build the training program around that. And it's quite obvious with Javier that, you know, it's like his swimming and running was off the charts good. I mean, I've never seen even some of his training data. I've never, I, I still to this day haven't seen training numbers like it, but, you know, his, his cycling was where we needed to do the work. So we kind of got to work with closing that gap um, as best we could. So what are the things that you're looking at when it comes to you? Like when you say that you, you want to take a, a little bit of a, like an in-depth look at, at where he's at right now with Javier, was it, do you get him in a lab and do some testing? Are you just like getting, you know, GPS data and, and, and all of that kind of thing sent to you from sessions he's done in the past or yeah. What, what exactly were you looking at with Javier? So, so he, I mean, there wasn't that much training data, so I couldn't really depend on that because he didn't really record that much in in the past. So my main the with with Javier, the, what I what we do is just get him in the lab, really, and we do a variety of measurements. So look at his um, fat oxidation, look at his maximal fat uh, maximal fat oxidation, fat oxidation, running economy, gross efficiency in cycling, um, aerobic threshold values, cycling and running. Um, you know what they are and what's per kilo look at here try and assess how durable he is so how his thresholds change over time um, and then and then I once you have those together I, I I mean I have an idea not that I'm 100% certain that they're definitely the right numbers of you know kind of what it takes you know what it takes to win at Kona what numbers do we need to be seeing so you know what does that mean what does his what's per kilo need to be what do what does he need to be running at vt you know less than 135 heart rate for him what kind of speed does he need to be running in and then i'll kind of look at you know if if he's here now but he has to be here you can immediately see where where the gaps are and um you know and i i did this for him and i, I kind of presented it on a big radar plot so you can really easily see where the problems are in terms of his physiology and it's quite clear then that you then you can start kind of honing the program towards closing the the gaps at the right time and and it's not like it's a one-off and, you, and that's it you, you kind of I, i'm quite big and, and quite a fan of like testing and reassessing all the time and testing and reassessing and, and building the program on um on on those on those specific specific gaps and so you said that you try and figure out like is does this person have the the numbers that they need to win big events like kona um, and it sort of reminded me of, there's a really famous example of this and it's a bit of a, you know, controversial example, but it's one that everyone who sort of really closely follows endurance sports probably heard of before. It's, it's that, uh, Lance Armstrong's old coach, Dr. Michaeli Ferrari would always say to Lance that at lactic threshold, you need to be pushing seven, 6.7 Watts per kilo to be a chance to win the tour de France. Yes. 
it's exactly the same concepts, but we just um, not quite. We don't. We 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 use training to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be a little bit controversial if you came out yeah. and said that you were using EPO to get happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. We we use general, but it's the same concept, right? It's an, and it's a clever concept. Is that you know like a start? And we do it. It's not. We we do it all the time in um in this. Is, we did it in. I did the same thing at rowing. I did this. We do the same thing at women's kayak. Is you know, if you can't understand where your performance gap is, then how are you supposed to start being a better athlete? And I, I don't think it's even mutually exclusive to to professionals. I think it, the the same approach can be taken to age group athletes as well. Um, you know, if as, if you have an idea of what it takes to not even win or be top ten in your age group or go under nine hours, you know, if you, first you have to kind of get an idea of what that looks like as a in terms of physiological variables, and then. The next step will be, okay, if, if you have those physiological variables, what type of sessions would I need to be able to do to, to prove that? So, you know, if, 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 if you decide that, you know, it's three watts per kilo at the at your aerobic threshold, then does that mean, what type of session would that look like? Maybe it's like four by one hour at that specific power out, but without going over your aerobic threshold heart rate. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of approach that I, I take and I kind of think about training in that way is that first you establish the gap and then think about the training that would mean that you can almost achieve it. And then if you think about it, that means three by one hour, where, where's your starting point? What, what, what starting point are you going to start? Do you start with 30 minutes at that or do you start with a lower power output? You know, that, I think it's kind of that structured progressive approach to the training, knowing, knowing the end in mind. There's actually a great book and it's called um, uh, Start at the End, and it's by Dan Biggles. Dan Biggles, the guy who was doing the aero coaching for the the aero stuff for Alistair Brownlee. It's Dan um, Bigham, I think. I've read that book. Dan, Dan Bigham, yeah. Start, yeah. It's called Start at the End. Yeah, it's it's the exact book. same approach. Really good book. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I recommend that book to everyone because he has the same the exact same philosophy. He looks at, okay, start at the end, what do you have to do to be good at a four-kilometer pursuit? And that's even easier because it's such a closed loop, right? You know, <laughs> you can really get down with the numbers um, to understand what has to be done in terms of CDAs, power outputs, and everything else. Um, so it's the same, um, yeah, same, same concept. That reminds me that I um I want to I want to do a little bit of a series where I get a, a number of coaches on who I really respect and and that's why I'm starting with you in, in this category but he's another guy that I really want to get on and um, you and him do seem very similar very scientific minded very like um, fact based like this is what you need this is how we'll get it to you like I would say you talked a little bit earlier about how is coaching art or is it science. You, to me, seem like one of those coaches who slightly leans more towards coaching is science, even though obviously from talking to people who, who you've coached that I'm good friends with, that you, you are a great people person and, and there is a little bit of the, the art and relationship side of it that, that, that you're really good at as well. But you do seem like a very science guy and let's get the facts and, and then let's build our training program based on those facts. Um, and, and what I was going to ask about before is, do you have in your head, like off the top of your head, what those numbers are that you need to be, say, the Ironman world champion or the 70.3 world champion? Um, I have them roughly in, in my head, yeah. I mean, don't really give too much away, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, my feeling is like, you know, VT1, like your aerobic threshold needs to be around 4.1 watts per kilo. So you can then you can kind of extrapolate. If that's at 4.1 watts per kilo, 
most people will do, most pros would do um, that around 78% of your threshold power. So then you can kind of understand what the threshold power would have to be to be associated with that. Um, fat oxidation has to be around one gram per minute, and that has to be around your Ironman pace as well. So I have all those numbers in my head and, you know, VO2 max, VO2 max isn't important, but I think it needs to be above 70 at least, you know, but it's not, it's not as important. Right. But um, yeah, the, the, I do have the numbers in, in my head, um, but I don't, whether they're hundred percent correct. I just, I will never know because I've unfortunately I've not had an athlete who's won, who's won Kona yet. So when I, when I have, when I have that athlete, it will be, um, it will be a good day because then I'll have the exact numbers, you know, I have a better idea. Um, but I've seen, I have seen Kona winners, some of the Kona winners data. Um, but, but like when I was at rowing and when we were, when I, and with women's kayak, um, women's kayak, we've got, um, Lisa Carrington, who's a five-time Olympic gold medalist. So, you know, we know what it takes, you know, we have those numbers. So bench press, bench pull, it's a different, different story, right? So we know, okay, what do you have to do in the bench press? What do you have to do in the bench pull? What do you have to do over 300 meters? What do you have to do? What does your threshold power have to be? But we know the exact numbers. Um, whereas I don't, I don't, re- I have a, I'd say it's more of a kind of a educated guess when it comes to Ironman at the moment, at least. So you said that aerobic threshold needs to be 4.1 watts per kilo so for for those of us who don't understand that what is aerobic threshold like what does that look like in a practical sense so that's a that it's basically it's a, it's a point at where you lose really completely steady state physiology so you're so i mean it's a difficult term because inevitably if you do anything for long enough, your physiology will not be, you know, it will change eventually, right? Because of the durability aspect. But if you were just doing it on a basic kind of step test with like, you know, five minute increments and you're increasing those increments every five, five minutes, it's the point at where things start changing. Your VO2 will start rising gradually. Your lactate will go up. So you can no longer maintain physiological steady state. And um, so it's very easy. So it's most for most people that describe it as somewhat hard. You, you could you could just hold the conversation at that point. It's not easy, but you could hold the conversation. And, and then you talked about how you have seen some numbers like I don't I'm not going to ask you to sort of, you know, give those away. But who whose numbers have you seen? Like, have you seen any of the real big dog numbers like guys like Jan Fredino or Alistair Brownlee or people like that? Well, I've seen Alistair's. I've seen Alistair Brownlee's numbers when he was a junior. If that's anything, because I when I when I was um, doing my masters, I was um, on a coaching scholarship at Leeds, and I was I was and Alistair was there as a junior, and I and I was you know I was coaching him and his brother Johnny, and um, I was testing them in the lab and stuff, so I knew what they were like then. But um, no, I haven't seen their their numbers fully. I had one athlete. I mean, some athletes who have coached in the past have done a bit of training with. Um, old Frodo so I I kind of know a little bit you know I know what they can do in training at least but I don't know what they look like specifically is it Terenzo who was working with Jan yeah Terenzo was doing some work with Jan yeah yeah because when you were that was something I wanted to talk about when you were coaching Terenzo I thought he was bloody good and had a few things where he just got super unlucky um but like Terenzo Bazzoni is one of those guys I look at who could have done so much more with his career despite how good it, it, it already was yeah i mean it was massively un- unfortunate like the accident really derailed him really and then he had achilles troubles i mean honestly i, I was thinking about this when i was out exercising the other day you know if that accident hadn't have happened i really think you know his tra- trajectory was so good back you know in 2000 early 2018 when he 
He won, um, he won Ironman New Zealand. He went to Western Australia. He totally, the 70.3, he totally absolutely crushed everyone. He, um, he came third in Cairns off the back of a, a horrific training block, like massive. And he just dropped everyone on the bike. He rode off the front of them. Um, but then his, obviously his accident happened. But if that hadn't have happened and the way he was progressing in his trajectory, I think that the world champs in Utah this year would have been one for him because that course, you know, though that course would have really suited him. Um, he would have just been flying, but you know, who's, who's to say it's all hearsay, but um, yeah, I mean, I think he had, yeah, did a lot in his career, of course. I mean, but um, I think at one point he was, I don't, he was one of the most, um, he had won more 70.3s than any other pro, right? Because, but um, I don't know whether that still is the case, but he was right up there. So yeah, that period in sort of like, 2017 2018 where he came sixth at the ironman world championships and then just went on a tear after that like yeah he was almost unbeatable like you said he he won ironman western australia then like i think it was like two months later or whatever it was one ironman new zealand and then from memory he won like six 70.3 straight for that year and then went back to went back to uh ironman western australia and won it again i was just like whoa like he just yeah he was winning everything around here yeah so I, i started working with him about maybe six months before he came six in Kona. Yeah. But um, yeah, we didn't announce it at the time, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, it's always a what if, right. But I mean, I mean, I actually spoke to him yesterday. We're still, we're still in contact a lot. Um, he's not really training any at the moment. Um, and whether he will or not, whether he will or not again, I'm not sure, but, um, but I think, uh, it's such a difficult thing, I think, for an athlete like that because if you take that time out of the sport and then you look at, you know, look at what's going on at the moment, right? Look at the, some of the times that are being put down. It's quite a daunting experience. You know, when he was doing it, if you were running, you know, 245, you were hustling on that marathon, right? That's amazing running. But now it's, if you're not under 240, it's like, pff, what's what's your problem? (laughs) You know, you know, so that's actually something interesting is like the, how quickly triathlon seems to be progressing at the moment and how, how good the world-class performances are. Like it really does feel that since like, maybe since around like 2019, that it, it feels like the game's just changed. Like now you have to be, you know, a guy who in 2016 would have won the world champs. Like you just, you have to be that good just to be top 10 at the, at the world champs. It feels like at the moment. Um, and it, it's funny that you're working with Javier Gomez because I think the first real performance like this was, was one that Javier did back in 2014 at the Ironman 70.3 world champs where, yeah, where Jan yeah, comes yeah. second. And, and that was one of those performance that, that, that we're seeing sort of every day now. It was like well ahead of its time where he, rode like uh i think he rode like 206 and swam like 21 minutes and uh, and he went sub one hour 10 minutes at the world champs like for the run which is now that's what everyone's doing but back then it was so crazy have you like um have you and him sort of uh, talked about like the progression in in triathlon and and like where do you see it like do you do you agree that like now the performances are just so much better than they they've ever been before yeah, I mean, they're so much better than they, they were before. We haven't we haven't really talked about the progression. I mean, all, all we look at is, you know, we, we kind of have target times, right? And I, I think that even if I look at his numbers, you know, he's well capable of running low 230s, you know, for a marathon, well capable of that. So I think he's he's within the mix, right? And 
and it's such a shame that he got COVID before um, before Utah because the way that race unfolded would have just fell right into his hands. I'm not, I don't know whether he would have beaten um, Blumenfeld, but, uh, you know, he would definitely have been in the mix with Braden and hopefully had a better pacing strategy on the run and held off and held off Sanders or you, you just don't know, right? But the way it unfolded, he would have made the lead pack on the swim. The bike group was hard, but I think it was quite controlled. So it wasn't really surgy. So he could have hopefully hung in there. And then, you know, his running's, his running's next level. So it would have been an interesting one. But, you know, we don't, we don't really talk, to answer your question, the, the first question, we don't really talk about the progression. We just really talk about what he we think he's capable of. And, and what he's capable of, I believe that is within the progression, within the realms of winning in the progression that we're seeing at the moment. And a guy like Javier, so like if you – what's a real con one? Like everyone does like a 20-minute test on 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 the, on the Zwift on, on a bike. Um, what sort of watts per kilo does a guy like Javier do for that? And then like do you have like running tests that you would do with him as well that like normal people could relate to? Nah, we don't – I don't really do any of those those FTP tests because I just think they're – they're just not accurate. They're just terrible. <laughs> like they're just – I mean I just do lab testing because – because the problem with an FTP and all those those general testing is, I mean, they're fine for an age group to get you an idea for an exercise prescription, but it's not really telling you what's happening in terms of physiology. So, for example, like you could have a difference by, you know, within people who, so two people could do like 260 watts, for example, for a 20 minute FTP, but one could be 20% off their actual threshold. And then one person could be like 2% off their actual threshold. So the terms of actual, so then when you go and prescribe training, they're totally different. So if you imagine that um, the person who did what one person did it with a massive anaerobic contribution of what we call the anaerobic, like anaerobic reserve, which you can do over 20 minutes, you can still have quite a large anaerobic contribution. And the other person did it who's like more type one, slow twitch fibers, very oxidative. They did it with almost no um, anaerobic contribution. Now you give those two people the same training one, the guy who's got the big anaerobic contribution will be pretty wrecked after a week of training, especially if it's got a lot of high intensity, whereas the other guy won't be, you know? Um, so that'll be, you know, just because I know, you know, Reedy and um, Reedy and Burks, there'll be two prime examples of two people who you yeah. could not give the same high intensity training to. If you gave a lot of high intensity training to Burks, more aerobic, less anaerobic, he would create 20 minutes of FTP in a very different way to Reedy he would cope with that hard week of high intensity training quite easily. Whereas really you'd be in bits, you know, because he's, because he's, he's not, he's not creating the energy in the same way. Um, so I don't really, yeah. So to, to answer the question, cut a long story short, I don't really <laughs> use those sorts of tests. That, that is really interesting though, because it speaks to something that I really wanted to talk about, which is a, a usual training week for you and so i gather there that what you're saying is how much volume and how much intensity you give to someone is purely based on that person like maybe you don't have ideas that hey everyone needs to do 30 hours a week and it should look like it should be broken down like this um and yeah like you said burke someone who tim burke or who, who everyone listen here probably knows um a guy who can do heaps of volume and it doesn't really seem to make him tired whereas reedy does 26 hours a week and and yeah, that's quite high volume for him, um, for his body type and, and his physiology. So how do you prescribe volume and intensity and how many sessions you give someone and how long someone's long run or long ride is and, and that kind of thing? 
So what, one thing that I've learned over time is I, look, I now look more at the um, age of the athlete as well. I, I, I mean, I, I think now, you know, the older the athlete, the probably the less volume you need to give them. Um, and the younger the athlete, it sounds a bit con- con- counterintuitive, but not like super, super young, but, you know, an, an athlete who, an athlete who's in the mid twenties to early thir- to thirties, you know, is very different to an athlete who's 35 to 40. Right. I think, you know, I think that's one thing that you can, um, that you can attest to and, and that does, is something that I would always consider. But the other things like in terms of the, the volume is one is it's like it's dependent on the the work. Right. So if so, say, for example, I have one athlete and I look at their performance gap and the, the threshold power is terrible. Right. They have a really bad or even better. The VO2 max is terrible, right? So really high intensity work, really terrible. Then I have another athlete and their fat oxidation is terrible. So then immediately I've got, okay, I've got one guy I need to improve his VO2 max. Oh, this other guy who I need to improve his fat oxidation. Fat oxidation is best improved by low intensity exercise with a bit of nutrient manipulation, whereas VO2 max is best improved by doing very, very high intensity training. So then it, it's really to do with total calories in, in the week. Not that I measure calories, but you can't expect the guy who's working on the VO2 max to do the same volume of training as a guy who's working in, on the fat oxidation. So training volume depends on the stimulus at the time. So if it's a high intensity stimulus, it just has to be lower volume. Otherwise, that, <laughs> you just can't do it, right? There's, you, can only, you can only do so much work in a week. Whereas, um, you know, if you're doing a lot of low intensity training, then of course you can do more training volume. So it's hard to say, I don't think it's really, indiv- it is somewhat individual, but um, it's more the type of work. It's, it's the individuality of the, it's, I guess the individuality comes more from the type of training that that athlete needs to do. And then the volume is a prerequisite or a side, you know, it's the, it's the, the, um, the output of what the intensity of the training is, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I'm, I want to sort of get a little bit more of an insight into this. So like just take two of your athletes at the moment, like maybe go with Javier and Chelsea, two of your sort of best male and female athletes uh, over the hey, island. What about, what about, what about Jan van Berkel? He's pretty good. Jan's good too, <laughs> but he's not Javier Gomez good. No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love Jan van Berkel. He's, uh, he's been one of those guys, European guys, who's always come out and raced Australian races. So he's, yeah, uh, yeah. he's quite the well known. Yeah, I, uh, I like it. I always liked it when I, I always, liked it when i coached both the van burkles that was always fun <laughs> yeah yeah they they're, they're actually quite similar in a few ways tim and yarn i reckon yeah well both both shitty at swimming average at the bike and good runners <laughs> <laughs> both swear a fair bit <laughs> yeah and, uh, i don't know if yarn swears as much as tim <laughs> no. well my first episode i did with tim which was like episode four of this so it was pretty new like I've never really had to edit anything out of this podcast, but with Burks, mate, I had to edit out so many like things that he would just like, like, like swear 10 times an episode. That's fine. But I reckon Burks probably dropped a hundred F bombs in the episode and, <laughs> and a few worse than that too. <laughs> oh no, not a few C words, surely not. Six, six. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then afterwards we were like, oh, that was probably just two. Cause it was just like, we were just two mates chatting. And we're like, oh, I yeah. sort of forgot we were yeah. recording. That's good though. That's the bit. way you want it. That's nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so you like, let's take your like Chelsea and, and Javier, or you can do yarn. I don't really care. Um, what would their training sort of vary like built in the build up to an Ironman? Like 
is it pretty similar, even like despite these little differences you talk about that makes an individual's program an individual's program, because they're coached by you, are they still at heart very, very similar with just subtle yes. differences? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much so before an Ironman, as you asked, like, because before an Ironman, I believe that at the end of the day, the principle of specificity will always win out, right? So you, I generally look at more of individual differences early on, like, you know, t- t- training, the tailoring the programs for the individual in the very early phases of training. But then as you get towards the competition, you can't, you just have to be specific towards the event, right? There's no point doing 16 200s on the track when you've got to run a marathon, you know? You know, when you, you just have to think about it. When you're running a marathon and you're in that last 10K, the last thing you're going to be thinking is, God damn, I wish I did more speed reps on the track. You know, you just, there's, these aren't the things you think, you know, you've got to, the training then has to be very geared towards the specific powers, the specific intensities that that has to be the main bulk of the work with a little bit of differences in between. The only real differences is with Chelsea. She's quite new to the, to, you know, to this kind of work. Um, she just needs a little bit more recovery between the big sessions where I can kind of smash Javier a little bit more. I can give him just, you know, what she could do two big sessions a week. Javier could probably do three, sometimes even four. Um, but that's where the main differences are, are. It's more the recovery between those sessions, but the training is pretty much identical. Obviously powers and paces are just different. And what would be a big week for those guys volume wise? Yeah. I mean, typically I'm not a big volume. I'm not a big volume type of person. Like Chelsea would be, you know, 25, 25 hours would be a big week for her. Javier would be 30 hours would be a big week for him. Um, so um, yeah, they're, they're the types of big weeks that they would be doing in those specific Ironman bots. But I mean, I mean, they, they generally, you know, Javier sits around the 25 most of the time goes up to 30 and Chelsea sits around the 20 goes up to 25. So um yeah not 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 i mean i don't not crazy not crazy amounts of volume i mean most lots of age groupers train 20 hours a week right yeah with like those guys is everything that you do with them based around the training or are you a real holistic guy like do you sort of try and get an idea of everything they're doing and and maybe have a voice in in everything like sleep and nutrition and I don't know other things like i, I don't know what your things might be like maybe you make everyone do <laughs> you know, some recovery thing every week or, or are you purely just like, Hey, let's nail our training. And, and that's what we're going to focus on. And, and, and I'll sort of leave everything else in your hands. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, I think the question is, yeah, my main focus is always a training, but, but I do measure everything else because I believe that impacts the training. So, you know, I measure, um, you know, measure sleep. So most of my athletes will wear some kind of wearable device where I can measure sleep um, HRV is something that I depend on quite regularly. Um, but I also talk to them a lot because one thing that I've really learned, you know, n- not just with, not just with working with triathletes is that the, you know, and this comes back to the art or the science, you know, you, and you said, I, I lean towards the science side. I do, but I think the, the, the kind of the top dog or the kingpin is always what the athletes feeling and how they feel, because, if an athlete says to me, I'm just not feeling it, I'm not feeling good, then that's it. Then I say, okay, fine, let's change the training. I, I never question that because if you're not, if an athlete isn't ready emotionally to cope with, to do the type of training, they just don't absorb it. Um, you've got to be happy. An af- a happy athlete is so important. And that's always, I mean, if I look, think about the, my pyramid or my philosophy, that's always top of my, you know, it's quite holistic because I'll always make sure the athlete's 
in a good headspace first and foremost. Um, because otherwise, I mean, it's proven in the research, John Keeley, and that's why HRV for training, HRV guided training works so well is because if you're not in a, in an emotionally good, ready state to absorb training, there's really just no point in doing it because you, you really are flogging a dead horse, you know? And so for, like, I, this is really interesting because that sort of stuff probably can't just happen overnight. Like someone comes and, and talks to you and says, Hey, I want you to coach me, Dan. Um, and then the next day you probably can't, they, like if, if the very first day they go, oh, I'm not feeling that. I assume that's very different to if you've worked with someone for two years and they say, Hey, I'm not feeling that. Yeah. It, it takes a while for sure. I mean, when with someone new, I mean, the thing is like, if you're working with pros, it's quite easy because a pro will never say, I don't want to train if, if, unless it's quite serious. I think it's quite obvious because it, you, you can't get to that level without having a very strong work ethic. I think when you're working with age groupers, sometimes they need a bit more of a kick up the ass, you know, so to speak. Um, but I don't think you really have that with pros. I've never come across a pro who I really have, maybe really, maybe he needed to kick up the ass every now and again. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, no, but you know, there's, but you don't really, you know, it's, it, I mean, I just, I just joke. It, my reading is the same, but you, you don't get pros of Burks's level, Reed's level. I mean, Chelsea, Caroline, Stefan, um, Javier, all these people. They just, they just have such strong work ethics that if they tell you that they're not really feeling it, they really aren't feeling it. So, I think you just have to listen to it. And then, like, how, when you build a relationship with an athlete, right, how in detail are you going about things they're feeling? Like, is it really just surface level stuff or are you having conversations that they would probably really only have with their significant other type of thing? Oh, it depends on the athlete, I, I guess. Like, I, I think, um, uh, I don't, I feel like most of them don't, not, not really get too, because I think you don't really, it's really hard to get that close when you're, on um when you're online a lot of the time you don't have that personal communication um but you know having said that i feel like you know with chelsea we're quite close and i feel like she'll you know she'll tell me most things you know i I think um in that particular situation so yeah it just it just depends it depends on the athlete and how willing they are to be to open up i guess i mean i feel like i remember um especially with terenzo I mean, we saw each other nearly all the time. So he was probably one of the athletes who I had the closest relationship with, you know, in a kind of emotional way. You know, he was his godfather to my to my daughter as well. So we're we're very, you know, we're good mates. And and when he would call me or I would call him, I would I could tell whether he was on or off just by the way he answered the phone. You know, it yeah. gets that it gets that close. So um, and that's and I think that's really good. And I think that's where um. You know, someone like Brett Sutton, and I know I listened to your podcast with him, you know, he's a prime example of someone who he can't really coach people effectively unless he's with them. And when he's with them, he's an amazing, you know, he's proven, proven in the proven in the pudding, right? He's an amazing coach because he can clearly connect with his athletes and know how they're feeling on on that level. But he he can't do that with data. So he has to be close to them. And I think, you know, if you can do that, it's a real, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a massive thing. And it's very, you know, some of the best coaches in the world do that. I remember at rowing, the, one of the coaches there, the head coach was very much the same as, as, as Brett Sutton. And, and they, get, they get a lot of champions that way. Yeah, I find that really interesting as well. Is like, you can't argue with Brett Sutton's record. Like he is 
I think very arguably the greatest triathlon coach of all time in terms of what he has achieved with some of his athletes in just, just in just like in terms of his record. Um, but he's quite different to you as a coach. So is, like, is there a, is there a way that works best? Like, how do you, how, do you like think about that? Do you think about, well, maybe I should be more this way or, or maybe I should go even more towards the science kind of way? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question because, you know, you can, I, I'll listen to like Christian Blumenfeld's coach and I'll be like, geez, I'm not sciencey enough. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know I listen to, I listen to Olaf um, Boo um, and I'll be like, what the, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel I'm scientist. But then I also think there is a bit of paralysis by analysis with that kind of thing. And you can be doing too much. And then, um, and then I'll, you know, I listen to like someone like Brett Sutton. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not, you know, in tune with my athletes enough. And, and I think like, I think there's nothing wrong with, I mean, I, I think as myself as a coach, if I say, you know, what's my biggest, um, my, big, my biggest work on, I would love to be more hands-on because, but you know, I'm not hands-on. I'm doing most of it over the computer. I'm doing most of it over zoom and talking on the phone. And I think it would be good to spend more time with my athletes for sure. There's no, I don't see how that can have any negative detriment, you know, so, um, but I do see the other side. I do see that you can become too sciencey. I don't really think you can become too empathetic and in tune with your athletes. I don't know how you can be too much that way. Well, I guess you could if you if you you got too much into the into their personal lives and whatnot. But you know, it's, I think it's quite hard to do. And, and like, I think that's a really good um, point you bring up with the the Norwegian system. And that's being talked about a lot in triathlon at the moment, like the way they do things, the amount they do. Have you looked into that like deeply and, and thought about that and, and maybe seen like how good those guys are and, and wanted to change things based on that? Uh, not really. I don't, I mean, I don't think they're doing anything that's that. I mean, I think they're measuring a lot, but I don't think they're doing anything that that's crazy in the training. You know, they, they do things on lat. They do use a lot of lactates, but lactates aren't necessarily any. I wrote a blog on it. You can check it out on Endure IQ. Um, you know, the different, you know, lactate versus heart rate. It's just, you know, what they do doing is they're just making sure the exercise prescription is correct and the intensity is correct, which is the same point as what I brought up earlier with the benefit of lab testing versus doing a, a lactate, um, an FTP test. You know, it's it's they're they're very they're very close on that. And, and they do stuff that, you know, looking at the double, like looking at oxidation rates of carbohydrates and the positions and that. But I don't think, I mean, I just don't think that it's, they are, they do, they, they measure a lot, but I don't think it's anything that's out of the ordinary, really. That's, I mean, I listened to Olaf on a podcast not long ago and he was on the Hit Science podcast and, and I didn't really get anything out of it. They're doing a lot of good things, but nothing was like, wow, that's something really different, if you, if you know what I mean um they're just they're just doing they're just getting the basics right i guess yeah it's i always like think about this because the norwegians are doing something right at the moment right like whatever that is they've got the ingebritsons like particularly Jakob, dominating uh you know middle distance running at the moment and then they've got christian and gustav who uh if and, the, not, and the 400 meter runner yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah and there's a few others as well from different yeah. sports like they've they're just in like their Norwegian's golden patch of, of endurance sport and, and athletics. And like, it does make you think like what's happening and particularly the Ingebrigtsens and the, and the Norwegian triathlon team, they do train very similar. Like they do, um, they don't do heaps of really high intensity things. They, they're quite high volume. They do 
a lot of work at or around like sort of aerobic threshold. And, and so it does make you think. No, that's not actually the case. They do a lot of threshold training. They're very, very into, I mean, there was, um, there's a, there's a guy back in who wrote a great article on this and, you know, basically they, they all, they do most things around threshold. So it gives you Christian's training in the week because they were talking, you know, he, t- he taught that, so, you know, they, they focus most of their stuff around threshold Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Ironman focused at the weekends, you know, more specific work at the weekend. So it's, it's not actually that they do a lot of training for sure. And like I hear stories that even the week of Utah, Christian ran like a 30 K so he can absorb a lot of work and do a lot of training as well. But they they are, it's a, then I, from my understanding, it's mostly around threshold training. It's not really like the, the polarized training, whereas because polarized is more, VO2 max, so above your anaerobic threshold, so very hard and then very easy. They do like clumps of threshold training with endure, a lot of endurance work and some specific work on, on the sides as well. So um, that's what that's my understanding of it. And it's all governed around lactate. So rather than as rather than prescribing training based on power, heart rate, they prescribe training based on lactate. So it's like, okay, go out and do six, one miles on the track with a lactate between three and four. And they're taking the lactates after every rep to make sure they're doing it in the right way. I mean, I could be talking completely out of terms. So <laughs> someone might go, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's fine because I'm, I'm only talking about what I've read. Um, but that is at least my understanding. And I'd, I'd love someone to tell me if I'm wrong or right on that. But um, that's the impression that I got from the readings that I've had. Yeah. I, I always think like, is it just their environment that makes them so good? Is it just that they've happened to have, you know, two athletes who are so good? Because there's quite a few people that, that, that train in that group. Like um, I think Casper's a really good yeah, example. Casper, yeah. He's sort of the yeah. third one and he, he won an ITU event before either of those two and, and sort of seemed like he might be the one. And then out of nowhere, Christian and Gustav just took off. Like, have they just got really lucky that, that they have those two guys who are very good and it's not actually the system? Yeah, it could. It could. I mean, I mean, the Brownlees are a, a, a testament to that, right? Because yes, no. One of the reasons that those two are so good is because they they had each other, and I think you know success breeds success, and I think that's part of it. But they're also you know they're they're, they're at a stage of their lives where they really have nothing else. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, like so they can really focus on on those things like they they haven't got any kids they haven't got any wives you know like you know it's i think it makes a difference personally but that's what you know that's what a lot of people are up against now you know and that's just the reality of the situation so yeah that they were just it's just the red bull doing it they just drink you know three or four cans of red bull a day that's what does it yeah yeah and the rest and the pringles and the nutella like (laughs) actually let's talk about that because everyone is talking about christian blumenfeld's weight in the triathlon world at the moment like you literally can't watch a christian blumenfeld race or or hear christian blumenfeld talk without his weight getting brought up and how like chubby he looks to the eye yeah yeah i mean i don't i think he i think he definitely holds a little bit more fat than your average endurance athlete but i think it's um it's, it's not right to say it's wrong. That's the, that's my main problem with it, you mm. know, and the, and it's not, um, who are we to say that he's not the optimal shape? We don't know. I mean, he's the world champion. So maybe everyone else should put on a bit of weight, you know, it's like why I know that typically, you know, being leaner means going a bit faster, but it's, it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it makes no sense. Right. Like if you looked at that Utah world championships, the guy who won did not look like an endurance athlete. And the guy who came second, literally ran the marathon with a limp. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, t- I said to my friend the other day that, 
you know, if you were just watching the last, you know, that point, the last like mile <laughs> yeah. of the of the race when um when Braden was basically Sanders was behind Braden, and you could see that Sanders suddenly came into view and he was running down Braden. And it was this long shot. If I'd have just popped down, I'd have been. What's this guy done? <laughs> jumped off the court. He's just jumped out of the crowd and he's running after Braden wearing his freaking singlet and running shorts. What's he doing? <laughs> yeah. But even Braden, like Braden's not the prettiest runner. Like I reckon all three of those athletes like have things about them where you're like, they're not yeah, like, you yeah. know, they're not Javier Gomez where everything just looks perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I think um, Blumenfeld's mechanics are good running. He has good mechanics, a good turnover. But I'd, you know, obviously he just doesn't look like a runner, but um, or it doesn't look like a, a your normal triathlete. But yeah, I, I think yeah, it's funny that I mean everyone talks about it, and I don't, I don't want to be one of those people who says it's wrong because how can you say it's wrong? Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah. yeah, do you do you talk with your athletes about their weight at all? Like how like when you talk about diet and food with your athletes, what are the conversations around? And like. Would there be a point with with one of your pros where you would say to them really honestly, like, "Hey, I think you're too too skinny, or I think you're too too heavy at the moment"? No, I, I never I never do. Um, I've never ever ever had that conversation with any of my pros. I I just really I'm very big. I mean, I'm very big on eating correctly and eating whole foods and and eating well. I think you know, and and they're the things that I talk about with my athletes and. And if you're training a lot and you're eating well, then the weight take, takes care of itself. That's it, really. Um, and I don't think I don't think you need to. And if they're running well and they're happy and they're not, you know, they're not losing too much weight, then you don't. I don't you don't need to. I mean, the conversation should be around eating the proper foods, not conversations about losing weight. Because if you eat the proper foods, you'll you, you you'll be fine. Um, and that's kind of. That's that's the approach that I take with them because it's always a it's always a touchy subject, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I still I still think like well with the Norwegians and it's you know it's been on the YouTube that you know they're eating Nutella and you know Coke and all this and I just think it's just um, it's not I mean they can they do it but I think it sets almost a bad example to all age groupers and everyone else and it doesn't mean it's right you know it doesn't mean that they're the best foods for, for you and on a holistic and a long-term point of view. And I think that, and then lots of age groupers can get a bit mixed up and think, Oh, that's fine. As an athlete, I'm fine to do that. But how do you know? I mean, what, what are the long-term implications of that? And, and um, I think as athletes being a triathlete, isn't necessarily healthy. And I think that therefore eating healthy is really important. Um, and then if you mix a lot of training, a lot of stress and a very stressful processed diet, you actually then end up being more unhealthy than you than you were when you weren't exercising. So I think um, that's one of that's one of my kind of passions that I, I try to, especially with my age group athletes. I, I kind of I try to get get across. So with your age group athletes, when they come to you and you start working together, are you talking to them about just being healthy, like in general life? So for example, um, if you set an athlete a twenty hour week and they had you know they were working a lot they had a partner or kids or or friends or other things that they were doing and and they had let triathlon sort of take over so they they had to wake up every morning and train then go to work and come home and train but their partners at home you know looking after their kids a little bit more and and it starts to put stress on other areas of their life do you ever concern yourself with that or do you go 
this person's hired me to become the best triathlete they can be. And that's all, that's all I'll think Yeah, I, def- I definitely concern myself with that because, I mean, I just don't, I think the best triathlete is secondary to the, to the athlete, you know, and especially for age groupers. When, you, when you're talking about, it might be slightly different if you're talking for a world championship as a pro or win an Olympic gold medal, whatever it would be. But I still think there's some aspects that you can bring in, make sure that they're very holistic in their approach. But, um, you know, I, I definitely take that into account. And that's one of the benefits. Like I measure heart rate variability in all my athletes. And one of the best things about heart rate variability is it's a measure of global stress. So if, especially with age groupers, if they're working a lot, they're, you know, they're sleeping less, you, you see it in the HRV. And as soon as that would start plummeting, then I'll just, I just change the training and make it easier so that I remove that, that bit of stress until like it kind of regenerates a little bit. The problem comes when people don't have this data available, they don't know it. And, um, and they kind of just spiral down and down and down, and then they become, you know, burnt out or whatever, whatever word you want to call it. And then like on this, have you ever had to cut ties with whether it's a professional or an, or an age group athlete because of things like this? Like you just, you don't agree with the lifestyle they're living or um, like they're, you think their triathlon's taking over their life in, in an unhealthy way and, or, or whatever the reason. Have you ever had to have like really hard conversations where you, where you stop coaching someone because of whatever reason? No, I've never, I've never had that situation. I mean, I don't think I've ever really had to, I mean cut ties i mean i mean we talk we talk about burks i mean i loved i mean i loved coaching burks and he was awesome but we cut ties because i felt at the time that we weren't communicating and it was the best for his career that he went and tried something new and i think as a coach that's that's the best thing you can do you always want the best for that person and that athlete and it's it's sometimes you cut ties because you want that athlete to be better Right. And you think that they could probably be better by taking a slightly different approach, trying a different, you know, trying a different um, method. Right. And I think I think that's the main reason I would ever cut ties is because I would just feel that, you know, that 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 particular athlete had would have more success by doing things slightly differently. You know, and and I think as coaches, we all run our course. Right. I don't think anyone is. I mean, as a coach, I fully accept that all my athletes will move on from me and they'll go to different coaches. And, and nine times out of 10, when they do, they have, um, they'll always have kind of a purple patch, right? Where they, where they find something new, new stimulus, and they, they get really good, really, you know, really quick. And they're really good things. And I think that as a coach, you, you try and leave, you, you, you want your athlete to leave in the best possible situation. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's inevitably will always happen because it just runs its course and it runs its course. And I think as coaches, if you hold on to them when it's not really, um, it's not really in their best interest or your best interest, that's just, that's not good coaching. And then a couple more things. So when you're coaching a male versus female athlete, does that change things much? Or is it very, very just based on the specific individual, not, not their sex? Yeah, I don't really buy that male versus female stuff, to be honest. <laughs> um, people will hate me for saying that. I, I, I just think, and it's funny because I, we had, um, we just had, I was talking to my PhD student, literally just before I came on this call, and we're publishing a paper in um, Sports Med. Um, and it's on carbon, it's on what influences fat oxidation, like carbohydrates on fat oxidation. But anyway, the one of the reviewers was talking about how we need to, take into account the differences in energy metabolism of males versus females. But my point to the reviewer is that, yes, there are differences in energy in metabolism between males versus females, but there's more differences within males 
than there is between males and females. So there's not, I'm not denying that there are differences between males and females, but there's also differences within males and there's also differences within females. So you may as well just look at them as an individual. And that's the kind of approach that I take is look at the individual. Don't just look at them as whether they're male or female. It, that, that's irrelevant because everyone's different, you know, and that's, um, that's the end of, it. of course, there's menstrual cycles and whatnot. And they're things that, you know, with, 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 some of, with my female athletes, I monitor I don't really make because they're in the follicular stage or the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. I'm changing training. I'm more interested in what happens to that athlete in the luteal phase. What happens to that athlete in the, in the follicular phase? That's the kind of approach that uh, I take. And, and then like it's, this is again, a very broad topic, but overtraining um, and whether, yeah, there's like, obviously that's so, such a broad and like, gray area in a lot of ways but do you talk to your athletes about things like energy levels and happiness and libido and and that type of thing to dictate how they're feeling or are you purely looking at like hey what's what's happening with their hrv and and that kind of thing yeah I, I, there is i mean there are a few subjectives that we collect in the morning like with that come with the hrv but mainly it's the hrv and communication right and talking to them they're the hrv and just talking um, often I'll talk to their partners as well. That can, kind of sometimes gives me a better idea of actually what's really going on. You know, right. <laughs> some athletes, they don't tell they're like, they're quite, you know, they, they always want to please you. And so then I'll, I'll talk to their partners and get the real, the real world down of what's actually going on. That can be quite helpful, but mainly it's um, just talking and, um, and those more objective measures with the HRV than anything else. So how do you go about talking to their partners? Is it like a thing that when you start working with you, Hey, chuck me your, chuck me your girlfriend's name or your boyfriend's. It just happens over time, really. You know, you, you get in touch and you, you get in contact and you, you know, and they'll f- give you a few messages and then, yeah. I mean, I don't say I do it with all of them, all of my athletes, but with some of them I do. Yeah, you know, just a quick WhatsApp. Hey, how are they going, really? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like what kind of things are you talking about? I, I, I'll just say, oh, I'll just say, how's athlete X looking from your perspective? How are they doing? How's their mood? That's, I'll just ask the question. Yeah, right. And what what would happen if if they like, let's say, for example, you're coaching me and you are talking to my my partner at the time, and and she says to you, oh, yeah, Jack's really moody. He's uh, he seems a bit like down on himself. He he uh he's not being the best partner at home like what what do you then do with that information yeah so i have actually had that situation happen to me um because one af- i mean let's talk take you an example like jack you were i was coaching you you were giving me the oh yeah i'm doing all right i'm fine but then the partner says otherwise i just get you both on a call at the same time it's as simple as that so you're a therapist <laughs> Yeah, as well. it's the easiest way though. <laughs> but I get, I just have, the, I just get like a Zoom call, both of them, both at the same time, and then you say, "Hey, what's going on? You know, uh, how are you feeling, Jack? You know?" And then you'll say, "Oh, I'm fine." And then, then they'll be like, "The line will be like, no, you're not." <laughs> yeah, wow. You know? So you've so, done that. That's crazy. I've, I've done that. Yeah, I've actually done it. So <laughs> without giving away their names, what what happened? Hey, it's fine. I just had a conversation about it, and then it, the outcome was really good. Yeah. I mean, they were a bit annoyed that the partner was talking to me, but <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Like, surely they would, they would like, as soon as that call was ended, they would just be like to their partner, like, "What the hell? What's going on here?" Yeah, but but it's for the best, right? It's like it's because, but yeah, I find it quite effective. Yeah, so. and and then what do you, what do you actually do in that situation? Do you go, okay, let's have a a period of like where you just fully take some time off training and 
and get back to being you or do you just drop things back a little bit? Yeah, or- you just, you just, um, yeah. I mean, in that particular situation, um, I just adjusted the training and, um, yeah. And I just, and, and then when, when I adjusted the training, it was, it was fine. It was, and that was that really. And then, and then the athlete was happy because the training was adjusted. So yeah, I think there's pressure, you know, there was pressure to do the training. Yeah, it is. It's age group triathlon is fascinating to me, like really fascinating. I think about it almost every day, I think where like triathlon is an age group sport. I I reckon that's pretty undeniable, even though I'm someone who really loves and believes in the professional side of things like age group triathlon is, is, is the sport. It's, it's what most people think of. It's like a big participation sport. Like the professional races don't get watched or talked about that that much like you know compared to say the nba or the nfl or or afl oh, yeah, yeah i mean i think it's um you know i heard it described once as you know triathlon is a an age group sport where pros take part yeah. <laughs> you know and it's quite true to be fair so yeah but the pto i think the pto are trying to make changes to that right making it because it's just I mean, the problem is it's the television yeah. i don't think I think the PTO are trying to make television and the racing more exciting. And I think that's where the diff, that's why it's kind of hard to break into and make being truly professional. Yeah. But but what my question I was going to ask is because of this, you get a large uh, group of the age group population who take it as seriously as the professionals, despite not quite being as good. And it really does take over their life. Do you, do you like working with age groupers like that where, they want to train like professionals and they're obsessed with it and and it's all they think about or, or do you like working with the guys who are sort of more like you know you get your 40 year old who's got a full-time job and wife or husband and kids and yeah i mean that they're, they're my preference yeah they are my preference like um i i enjoy people with a curious mind that's there i mean i think about all the athletes that i coach they're they're all very curious and i think that's why we get along because i can I can explain the why as well as the what. And I think that's what they like, you know, and, and they like data. They want to know what it means. And I enjoy that sort of thing too. But I mean, when, when I, when I won um, Kona in 2018, you know, you know, you talk about slow twitch and YouTube, you know, I got a lot of flack on slow twitch saying, you know, I'm just a professional triathlete racing age group, which was not the case because I had three jobs in a, and a, you know, a newborn and whatnot. Right. But, but, you know, but I think there are definitely a lot of, you know, there are so many age groupers out there who really do just train professionally, you know, and there's a lot of pros out there who, who train, um, who train like age groupers. So it's just, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny mix between the two. Right. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. I mean, like even, even, you know, 2018, the age group, you know, I broke that record for the age group at Kona, but really does it really mean anything because there's you know there's about there was 20 or well not 22 but there was a lot of people up the road who were um who were in my age group who were faster than me right who were racing professionally but um i think it does add add a lot add a lot to the sport but yeah unfortunately you get a lot of age groupers who you know who race um who just train full-time pretty much and yeah and I'm trying to like think about what the takeaways from this conversation for age groupers might be. Like what would you sort of as some broad statements give as advice to age groupers to become the best or like athlete they can be within their within their day-to-day life, you know, without sacrificing 
everything else in their life. Yeah, well, well, I think um, you know when it comes to when it comes to performance and any training, it's. <clears throat> I mean, I, I know everyone would have heard this, and I sound like a broken record with it, but it's all to do with you know consistent training, being consistent, doing the 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 right thing, um, day in day out, and being too obsessive and not taking into account quite an holistic approach to them as athletes means that you're generally not consistent because if you're too into it and you're burning the candle at both ends and you're making too much like well sacrifice then generally it doesn't last right and i think that's the main thing is that you you just have to take quite a holistic approach to your training and um you know, you don't, don't expect to train like a professional. Why, why do you need to? But I think by doing the correct training at the right times, you can, I mean, I, when I trained for Kona, I did 21 hours of training a week, which is a reason, which is quite a lot, but it's not, it's not, it's not like a like It's not crazy. It's quite a, achievable for many people with a big ride at the weekend, you know? So, um, so I think just doing the, taking more of that holistic approach and being very specific in the training you're doing. So you make, you make sure that every time you train, you get as much bang for your buck as you can. Yeah. What With your training, when you were sort of that Ironman age group world champion, did you ever do anything crazy or were you just super consistent at doing, you know, you know, 20 hour a week or did you ever go and, you know, train 35 or 40 hours a week ever just to see? So I did, I did two training camps in the build up to that where I took time off work to do it. Um, and I did 30 hours a week in those training camps. Yeah. yeah but there was like one week, you know, so, <laughs> but I think, I do think it made a difference though. I think it gave me a good bump, you yeah. know? Yeah. Right. So when you're coaching an age group athlete, will you occasionally set that or is it just like so often just completely unrealistic? Yeah. It, it depends on the goal. Right. And, you know, if you want to win the age group in Kona, then those are the sorts of things you're going to have to do. But if you just want to go to Kona and place top 20 in your age group, then you probably don't. You know, I think it's, it depends on what you're, what you really want to achieve. I think, I mean, I mean, we talk about the science as much as you like, but at the end of the day, training is a simple dose response relationship. It's not that complicated. You give yourself a dose, you create a stress, you get a response. It's easy. The, so the more training you do, the generally, if you can cope with it, the better you're going to get. And that's where a lot of coaches go. Well, you know, some coaches just, throw a lot of shit and some sticks, you know, and they <laughs> yeah. have, they have a, they end up with a lot of very successful coaches, uh, very successful athletes. Cause if you get an athlete, a coach who coaches like that and you get an athlete, you can cope with the training. They'll be a champion regardless of what the training is. You can just make them do 35, 40 hours a week. And if they absorb it, then they're going to be good. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately you don't, th- those athletes don't come around very often. And I've seen it a bit. I saw it in rowing a lot of the times. We had one coach who would just, you know, he'd have that very approach. Crazy. He's notorious for just doing crazy amounts of training. And he had a lot of successful athletes, but he also had a lot of unsuccessful athletes. And he had way more unsuccessful athletes than he had successful athletes. But every now and again, you know, some would come along who could cope with it and they'd just be world beaters. So so that makes makes me think like, What's your measure of success? What's your internal measure of success for how good a coach you are? Uh, I guess I guess it's a to um, input output. I guess it's the it's. I mean, it's not really whether they won or not. It's when basically did they improve? How much better did they get when they were under your tutelage? As when you were coaching them, how much how much did they, how much did they improve? I think that's the 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 main thing. And I think like the reason I coach is because it's not necessarily the result. It's the happiness, 
that the athlete gets from that result. So um, like if I, I was coaching, I was coaching um, an athlete who, who had ridiculously high standards, you know, they would even get like world medals and <laughs> Olympic medals and whatnot. Um, and they just weren't happy with anything. And as a coach, I find that really hard because you really get no satisfaction, right? Because even, because even uh, if you're happy and they're unhappy, you get no happiness. And I think that's the most important thing. If the athletes really, if the athlete is happy with coming 20th in the world champs and they're, they, you know, it's, it's a, if they've improved and they've got that result and they're happy with it, then that to me is success, you know? That's actually really like, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that's, that's, that's interesting and quite healthy. Like it's not, yeah. it's not just about like, Hey, win, win, win. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's, do I make this person's life better by being in it really? Yeah. And, and, and have, and do, uh, and are they faster? You know, like Jan van Berkel is a prime example of, you know, when I, when I first started working with Jan, um, someone said to me, they were like, Oh, it's good. You got Jan, but he's a bit of a B grade pro, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Oh. but at the time, but at the time he hadn't really done anything. Right. Yeah. And, and all credit to Jan. When I spoke to him, he, I was, it's like, what do you, you know, what do you want to achieve? And he's like, you know, I'd love to get a top 10 in Kona, um, you know, win Ironman New Zealand. So these weren't crazy ambitions, but if you look at his, his progress, it's been astronomical, right. He's gone from, you know, especially in what he's done, you know, winning, uh, winning, um, I'm in Switzerland three times, 237 marathon, second in Tulsa last year in a very competitive field, came 11th in Kona. Um, so it's just, just outside the top 10. I think he can do more than that, but I think they're the, they're the kind of coaching relationships that I look back at and I'm quite, I'm quite proud of, you know, because I've just seen his progression. Jan's actually an interesting one where, and this is probably hard for you to talk about, but I've always wondered how Jan manages to survive as a pro because he's very good, but it is right. He like he's had how many top five like between sort of finishing third and seventh or eighth places has Jan had in his career? Like literally, probably hundreds. But he he hasn't quite taken that next step and been someone who is consistently coming first or second at races. Like I always think like that must be a really tough way to make a living as a professional triathlete where money isn't huge even if you are winning it's funny i was talking to one of my pros today and one of the comments was i don't think any of us are in this profession to make a lot of money right and it goes the same with coaching as well (laughs) so um, but um but yeah i mean he's he's won ironman switzerland three times now so he he has won and and i think a lot of the time makes a difference right is that you can be um if you do well in your home race in your home country that's you know, it's quite good. Right. I mean, yeah. even like Australia is the same thing, right. It's like, you know, Burks and, and really winning. I'm in Australia, Cairns and Perth and doing well in those races. You can, you can still, you know, you can still do quite well in, in on that, on that stage. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's not, Alley rate's not great for the Ironman triathlete. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know if there's any sport in the world where guys and girls train harder and get less financial benefit I know, from it. I know. I know it's uh yeah it's it's quite something isn't it it's like yeah if we were to put it on an hourly rate we would do it, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't Ima- be great but then <laughs> even more than that mate imagine if you if you did the the same thing with age groupers who take it seriously like what is the average age grouper who takes it serious losing in money per year yeah i know i know well, exactly then you're losing money yeah. there's this really good U- youtube clip about 
it's like this cartoon. It's really funny about this. I, anyone who's watching this, you should try and find it. It's a cartoon of this um, a guy and a girl talking, and it. And it's just, just like from two thousand and nine or ten. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's so <laughs> funny though. It's like, what you mean? You 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 go out all day. You exercise. You almost die, and you pay for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I have spent ten thousand dollars on my new bike. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's so good. People <laughs> should watch it. It's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I really do just have two more questions. Um, even though I said that about fifteen minutes ago, if you could coach anyone in the world right now, any athlete in the world who you're not coaching, who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, when Hayden Wilde goes to um Olympic, when he, when he makes the transition to seventy point three or or Ironman, yeah, he's a beast, Hayden Wilde. Yeah, he's gonna. Be- He's going to be the man, I think, at that when he sets up the distance. I don't because I don't think like Alex Yee will 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 make that push. He's he's just not. I, I mean, we talked about builds, but I can't see him making a transition to the longer distance. But I think Hayden is someone who definitely could. I reckon there's a few guys who will that are sort of racing. At oh, the and um, oh man, how can I forget his name? The Belgium Martin Van Riel. Martin Van Riel, that's it. Yeah, yeah. and him, yeah, he's he's pretty hot. Yeah, too. he's gonna he's he's already a beast, but he's yeah. There's a few guys that if you because a lot of triathlon fans really spend time focusing on Ironman and seventy point three, but Olympic and sprint distance or short course triathlon at the moment is just full of guys who are going to dominate long course for a long time. And and yeah. yeah, like the level there is probably you know like the the top ten are probably better than than ever. That you know obviously I think no one's as good as Alistair was at twenty sort of eleven and twelve, but the consistency across the top 10 and across short course. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that Alice has just had such a rough time of it and he hasn't, I mean, I would have, if you'd have asked me, you know, cause I've known Alice for ages. We grew up in the same town. He went to the same school as my brother, you know, and, um, and he's always been amazing. But I, if you'd have asked me, you know, in 2016, about what's going to happen when Alistair moves the long distance, I'd be like, he's going to he's going to crush everyone. He's going to destroy them all. But it's just we just haven't really seen it, and maybe we will, but I don't know. It's looking less and less likely because he's just he's just struggling so much. And even Johnny, like Johnny, just keeps. I would have thought that he would also make a reasonable transition, but he's done a seventy put a few of those challenge races, and it's just not panned out for him. So bizarre, hey. There's something interesting going on with that one, I have to say. But even like. When Alistair was a was a junior, like he would do crazy long rides and long runs, you know, and he'd be totally fine. So it's not like he can't do the the duration and the distance. I've I've talked about this with Alistair so many times on this podcast. Like I'm I like I just rate Alistair so highly. But Alistair's got two things that are like super clear. He just he's so impatient. He's an impatient racer, and it's what makes him so good at short course. And it's what's I think it's like the number one factor is why he struggled in long course. He, how many times has Alistair done an Ironman or a seventy point three where he's just burnt way too many matches way too early in the race? Yeah, um, and yeah. then like, I think Alistair was always going to struggle with injuries on the run. Like he just he always has. He's had how many times has Alistair had like an Achilles or an ankle issue? Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, but but Johnny's the one. Yeah, Johnny's the one. Yeah, he he seems so solid across the board, and like his mechanics are great. He's he's never really had like he's had like one or two injuries in his career, but maybe if like particularly recently. But for the first ten years in his career, I swear he was like never injured, and and he, he yeah, I, I'm surprised he didn't make the step. Yeah, yeah, he, he and he's a lot more solid, isn't he? Yeah. Um, it's funny though when you when we're talking about the 
you know, the transition of these Olympic guys going into the, you know, going into doing the longer distance. And I, I was having this chat with a friend the other day, and it's it's such an interesting dynamic because in 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 Ironman triathlon, you know, you see like someone like like Kat Matthews, for example, she you know, she was like an amateur a few years ago. Yep, or Lucy you know, Charles. Yeah, the amateurs. Yep. It's amateurs who become world beaters. Yep. You know, and I really believe it's because the Ironman, you can train average not that they have bad physiology or bad genetics but i don't i don't put them in the same league as a as a brownlee or a wild or a yee you know in terms of their genetic ability but you if you can train it's such a trainable sport i am man you can you can have average physiology and be a world beater because it's so trainable and that's what i love about it as a coach is that as a coach you can make such a difference with the training you know, and the right, the right approach. And I think that's um, really good, but I think there's going to be a point, right, where we're going to see the next, and then we're seeing, and that's what we're seeing now, right, with the Blumenfelts, and is that now we're getting the both of them, like crazy genetics ability and, um, and, um, and a a strong work ethic. Um, So, and I don't, I don't think, I don't, I I don't think um, Lucy Charles has by any means got poor genetic ability. She's, uh, she's amazing. Um, but you know, she was an amateur a few years ago and she went from being amateur to being like winning the 70.3 worlds by bringing 10 minutes. Right. So, yeah, we haven't really seen it in the men's field though. I actually, I, I think about this quite a lot and I, I talk about it to, you know, with like good women age group athletes at the moment is I think there is still huge potential as a female age group triathlete to make that push into being a really, really good professional. If you, I think it's more like personality that does it. Like obviously they have to have some physiological things that separate them from the very average person. But if you're someone who is, who is a female, who is like young enough, who is really motivated, I think that if you dedicate yourself, you can make it and you can be world-class. I'm not so sure you can still do that as a male. Like there, there isn't really an example of it happening for a long time. Yeah. I was trying to rack my brains on an example of that, but. Oh, there hasn't been one for ages. The only person who I know of who made a successful transition from age group to pro, a successful-ish transition is Carl Buckingham. We got Matt Burton in Australia who's done it pretty good, but he's been a pro for a while now. Yeah, Matt Burton as well. And Carl Buckingham would be the other one, I guess. But again, they're not they're not Cat Matthews or Lucy Charles, are they? Like No, no, they're not. They're 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 doing they're doing okay in races where there's not much competition, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no offense to those two, but you know they're not they're not they're not winning the world championships exactly yeah do you think that the female like side of the sport like how long will it take before you can no longer do that do you think that time's pretty imminent or is it is it still like do you still have 5 to 10 years before it, it gets to the point where you have to have been doing it your whole life yeah a good question i think i think we're not too far away i mean the stand, the standards on both sides male and female is just out of this world now right so yeah um yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know the answers that i can't see it being too far away because i mean yeah it's just getting so fast right especially when you've got someone like lucy charles who's she's just when when she was at her best before the world champs there was no weakness anywhere right so yeah i wish we had got to see lucy uh laura and daniela race at st george because i don't think any like going into that race i i thought that if everyone was there that Daniela could only come third or fourth. Like I, I think she's the greatest of all time, but 
but I just thought Lucy and, and Laura had gone past where Daniela was in the sport. Yeah, it would have been interesting because it's hard to see um, anyone beating her that day. Yeah, on that day, yeah. 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 It's funny, like, you know, as we talk about age groupers, and I, I think, um, you know, the goal standard of an age group male is whether you beat Daniela. <laughs> yeah, well, no one did at St. George, did they? Didn't she beat like, all the age group males? Yeah, like six minutes. She beat him by six minutes. I th- nah, I think Matt Kerr, didn't New Zealand's Matt Kerr, didn't he win the age group? And I think he she beat him by like a minute or something. No, he was 8.40, she was 36. Oh, really? Oh, so it was four minutes. minutes. Four minutes then? Four yep. minutes, yeah. I think that was the case, yeah. So when I went in 2018, I was talking to Sorenzo before and I was like, well, I said to him, well, I'd like to win the age group, of course, but if I don't, I still don't want to be by Daniela. So, you know, I crossed the line in like um, 8.24 and I was like, yeah. She's never going to be that. Like crushed her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then it was like I was like three minutes in front of her, or two minutes in front. Of her. Yeah. Well, that course record still stands of hers. I don't know if anyone. Will, that's like such a crazy course record. Hey, I, I said I was going to ask two questions, and we've already gone past that. But that's all right. I have time. That's all good. Read, read that day. People probably won't remember, but that was like everyone talks about that as being like the fastest day in Kona history that in 2006 are sort of known as the two really fast days that Kona's produced was it was it sort of your you were someone who was there and, and won the age group race you know far the fastest time anyone's ever won the age group race was it was it just dream conditions I mean it was Kona conditions it wasn't dream it was four I mean I've I, I talked to Thorsten Rad about this it's four minutes quicker than a normal Kona so it wasn't you're not talking 10 minutes quicker. It's four minutes quicker was the, was the, how much faster it was on that day than normal. Um, that's what the stats say. Yeah. It was good though. I mean, I was, I wasn't complaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good for you. It's given you something that you could probably hang your hat on and, and be satisfied yeah. with for the rest of your life. Really. I hope I'm going to hang my hat on it for a, a while to come too. <laughs> yeah. the, the problem you've got is that bikes are only probably going to get faster and faster. And then like, that's the problem with triathlon These records can't last for, forever because technology yeah, just I takes the sport. And, the sh- and also the shoes. Yeah, I the mean, shoes. then I ran them in the 4%, but now the shoes are even faster than that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's um I mean and I I mean even with the like the front end setups now that pe- you can have like you know basically full monocop concealment and you know it makes a big difference. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it's it'll, it won't last forever for sure but yeah. I I just need to my my, my plan is that I I feel I have more to me than just than just an age group win so (laughs) i'm hoping yeah and the age groupers who want to beat you beat that time they'll just think about the money they'll have to spend like a front end on a bike costs like five to six grand now the bike fit costs a thousand bucks the bike's 15 grand like they're gonna have to spend a lot of money doing it so they'll want to be rich yeah for sure you'll have to spend a lot of money doing it yeah yeah, for sure. And then the last question I want to uh, ask you about is something that me and you talked about off air is doping in triathlon. And, and I wanted to get your take on it as someone who I respect as like a, a real, like I, I think of you as almost like a scientist in a way. I know you, you, I don't even know if you think about yourself like that, but but you understand physiology and, and the human body as well as anyone uh, in the sport. How prevalent do you think that doping is in, in, in triathlon, particularly across the, 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 pro, uh, the pro scene? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think of myself as a scientist too. So there's no, no worries on that, but I think, I mean, I just look at the times people are doing um, and even what Blumenfeld's doing really, you know, are they like crazy superhuman 
you know, and I just don't. And, and then I look at the pros that I coach and, you know, 100% certain that, that there's no way that they're doing anything. And they're not, and they're close, right? They're, they're within, they're within a ballpark. So I think I'm not saying it's not there, but I'm not convinced it's there at the highest level. You've probably got some, you know, people lower down the ranks, maybe, um, maybe, but I, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I don't think it's as, 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 as clear as cycling, right? Whereas you, you, you have that, you know, doing things that were just, out of this world and even now you know like the last time the the leaders of um the winners of the last um tour de france remember they went at mont von two twice yep remember that yep. so the there was that they timed the last section of mont von two and they were two minutes quicker than pantani Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. i mean come on people yeah i mean these are obvious i mean i'm i'm you know these are obvious obvious things right but i just don't think we're really seeing that as much in um in triathlon at, at the moment at, at least so wait who knows i mean that's my that's my feeling because the you look at the you look at the physiology you look at what they're doing you look at you know where even if you look took it right down and you look at where you know where their aerobic threshold would have to lie for that what their fat oxidation would have to be what the carbohydrate availability would have to be what the running economy would have to be what the vo2 max would have to be it's you can look at all those numbers and you don't say hang on a minute how is that person having to have a via uh, even a running economy of a hundred 10 times better than a Kenyan, or they've got a via two max of 95, you know, it, it doesn't, you can, you can kind of do the maths a little bit and it's, and there's nothing that's crazy out there at the moment. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're, 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 we're in a good space. Yeah. So if someone asked you, like you had to put, you had to put your money on the line, in the last whatever five ten years, whether someone's won an Ironman World Championship, like do you would you say that they've all been won clean, or or do you think that? Like, no, what, no, I wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> no, I don't believe that is the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think I think there has been maybe one or two of us slipped through the net. I would say. Yeah, that, that's my my gut feeling on it, but I won't obviously won't name any names on that one. <laughs> I reckon I know who the, you might be thinking of, though. But anyway, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting, and we'll never know. Like clearly, you watch cycling at the moment, and again, without naming names because we, you know, we might get sued. But there's a couple of guys at the 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 front of the the peloton who are very clearly dopers, like very very clearly. You don't have to be a rocket science to figure that out. But it's it's so much more grey in triathlon, isn't it? and and triathletes, and I, I think the sport has a has a, a bit more of an ignorance to it where we, no one's ever been caught. We've never had a world champion be caught the year they won a world championship or, or anything like that. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, it's uh, it, no one no one wants to think that anyone is doing it, but I think the reality is that that, that probably is in the sport, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll I guess time will tell, but I do think if they are, they'll, they'll the most will be ahead of the curve, you know, as as they were in cycling for years. So, yeah, but um, we will see. But I do have a question for you, Jack. Ask me. Um, what's your what's your predictions for Ironman Keynes? Oh. As you Aussies, as you Aussies say at the weekend. <laughs> see, I would say Cairns, but I and then Burt would always say it's not Cairns, it's Keynes, mate. Keynes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely not Cairns. That's in France, isn't it? Can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh yeah, good question. I have like I just love Burke so much, right? That like 
it would feel wrong for me not to say that Burks is going to win. It's pretty hot there at the moment. It's not crazy, but it's it's mid twenties there. So you would know as well as I do that that Burks does pretty well over over hot marathons and and probably better than the average uh, the average long course pro. He 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 doesn't really fade too badly if it's a if it's a hot marathon compared to what someone like a Reedy would, who we yeah. talked about. Um, but. <sighs> And I've talked to Braden, obviously had him on the podcast and I've talked to him a bit since. And, and I know that he hasn't quite done the, the the perfect preparation. He had some time off after World Championships and did some stuff with the family and, and, and went and did some other training. So I don't know if we're going to see the same Braden Curry that we saw at World Champs. If we do, he wins it by minutes. Um, yeah. And and he, he has had some bloody... He, he, he has had the best performance ever at Cairns in the history of the day that he beat Javier Gomez. No one's ever raced better at Cairns that day than, than Javier and Braden, and Braden just got the better of it. Um, so I think that Burks wins it probably. Um, oh, really? That's I mean, yeah. I'm the same as you. I mean, I have messaged Burks this week because, I mean, I'm still his number one fan. Um, even though I don't coach him anymore, but I, I mean, I, that's that he would definitely be my preference. But I, I, I do, I find it quite hard to see happening, unfortunately, because I just think that there's going to be quite a strong group of cyclists out the, out the swim. There'll be Braden Newman, Apo, and and I just don't think he's got anyone. He's got probably a Ben Phillips, maybe, and but Ben's not like an axe on the bike, right? And then he'll have Matt Burton coming from behind. Well, that's what I thought. I wonder if he can ride with Matt Burton. Yeah, but Matt Burton will take Matt Burton will come from behind, won't he? So he'll take a while to get up to him. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. That, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that Apo will probably blow a gasket on the marathon. Um, sorry, Reedy, but that's my prediction. We'll see. I could be I could be proven wrong. Um, but then, so yeah, I'll be up to. Um, but to, to, to catch those boys in front. So it'll be interesting to see. I just, yeah, Braden's the unknown to me because if Braden's, if Braden is, uh, if Braden has a good race, Braden wins it, like without question in my mind. Very, very, like quite comfortably, I think actually. But I don't know, like I just, but then you saw yeah. what Christian did on the weekend where it wasn't near, it wasn't near what he did at, at, at St. George. Like Joe Skipper was quite close to him in the end and, and you could tell yeah. he wasn't quite in the same shape. But, yeah, it's like it's five. What has it been like? Five or six weeks since since the world yeah. champs. Like that's close. And and Braden, mm. ha- yeah, I, I don't know. The thing about Braden is he's such a battler that even if he's unfit, he'll just hurt himself to the. <laughs> yeah. You know, he'll, he'll just go for it. You well, know? he's without a doubt the best Ironman athlete in the field currently. It, like yeah. if they're all at a hundred percent, he wins it for sure. Apo is the unknown because Apo will be there. Like like Apo is not gonna not going to not be at the front of the race off the bike, I wouldn't think. No, I, I can't see that happening either. The, the question mark is what he does on the marathon, right? Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, it'll be in. I mean, it's his first. Is, is it, it's his first Ironman, right? No, he did Ironman Western Australia where he came. Uh, well, Oh, yeah, he did. Of course he did. The yeah. day that Alistair Brownlee won it. Yeah. And yeah. he rode with Alistair and the whole race and those two were off the front and he faded late in the marathon. Well, man, yeah, but maybe he could be the one. I mean... Yeah, I mean, here have see if he can, if he can, if he can. I mean, even if he strings together his best marathon, would he string together a better marathon than um, Braden and 
And Newman? Mm, mm, no, not than Braden, no, obviously. No, Newman would be closer. Yeah. And, and, like, I think that's the big thing that Reedy and Apo have been working on is is Apo's run um, because that, yeah. that's where Apo sort of felt like he dropped off in the last few years. So it will be interesting to see, but they've only been working together for a few months now, four or five months now. Yeah, that's um, hard to – you're not – you're only going to be putting the icing on the cake in that. You're not going to be building much sponge, are you? Yeah, and then Pete Jacobs is back as well, the, the yeah, 2012 Ironman World that. Champion. So Yeah, I saw that. You can't you can't discount an Ironman World Champion. I mean, he could be he could be with that group of three out of the swim. Well, he will, he'll lead the swim, you would Yeah, think. if his swimming is what it, like, what it used to be, but then he'll – He'll go around with um, nothing but honey and water in his bottle, and then <laughs> that. Yeah, I, so. I I hope Pete has a good day. I'm a big, I love Pete, but uh, he, he's he's in his forties now. Pete, he looks good for forty, but he's he's a he's yeah. an old timer as far as professional triathlon goes these days. And yeah, right, is he nearly forty? Oh, I think he is. Yeah, he's, he he's, would be because I think he's about. I think he's a little bit older than me, or maybe the same. I mean, I'm forty in October. And um, I remember the first time I heard of Pete Jacobs was he came and did um, Ironman UK back when I lived in England. So it was ages ago. And he just like, he just took off. And Mac had just, it was a year where Mac had his bike stolen from transition overnight. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember it. I remember it. Yeah. Him and Richard Richard Allen, if you remember remember who he is. Yeah, he had his bike stolen. And then, yeah, and I remember Pete Jacobs just out the swim and just took off. And this guy up the road on the bike, absolutely nuts. But that would be... It'll be very interesting to see how how that. I mean, he'll either surprise us and be amazing, or he'll 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 just be nothing. Right? Yes, I think you're right in that. He'll have a really good race, or he'll he'll have a really poor race, and I, I hope yeah. it's a really good one for his sake. And then the women's race is like so wide open. It's like it's a it's quite a small field, as is the men's field, and you got like Kylie Simpson, who's a who's a really really good runner, and Sarah Crowley's probably the the class of the field. Yeah, she must be the favourite, surely. Oh, for sure. They, they, you know, Radka, Radka Kalafelt's there, and I'm like, who knows how how Radka's going? Radka yeah. at her best was, you know, she's she's come uh, top five at, at World Champs before, seventy point three World Champs before, and she's yeah. she's won a heap of heap of things in her career. So she could, I don't know, I just don't know. Yeah, but it's actually, I mean, it's it's a good field, right? Like it has been. Um, because last year it wasn't as strong, right? But it's a bit, it's a bit stronger. There's, there's, there's at least three depth. girls there who are really good who could who could do anything, right? So. Yeah. Well, Chloe Lane's there. She's been racing well. Kate Bevelac was there. I think she's been racing well. Uh, forgotten sort of who else there is. I think Penny Slater's there. There's a, there's quite a few girls there who are who are pretty good and and it'll, it'll be a competitive race. But hard to see anyone beating Sarah and and Kylie Simpson. I would have thought. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. Well, oh. exciting. I'll be watching online at least. You're not going to watch, I guess. Uh no, nah, I was gonna go up there. I actually mentioned on the podcast I was gonna go up there and like six people who listened to the show messaged me and said I could stay at their house. So I was I was pretty tempted to go up there, but oh, nah, yeah. it just didn't quite work out. I'd pr- prefer to stay in the miserable cold that's Ballarat than go up to the son of Cairns. <laughs> yeah, it is a good place. I, 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 I we were thinking of um, going up there and having a bit of time in Port Douglas after, but it just never never materialized but yeah we'll get back there one day cool well what's on what's on for you from now you sort of just coaching and and doing your thing or have you got anything big planned uh yeah i'm coaching doing doing my thing really like trying to grow the business as well like my coaching business and enjoy iq people can check out we got like we do online online coaching we have a squad so doing a lot of work on that um you know we, and i'm doing my research and um, working with women's kayak still and then and the rest of the time is 
you know, helping my pros and age groupers. I mean, I still, I still have a little bit of an ambition to, because I feel like I want to do an Ironman on a very fast course and see if I can do a faster time than A24. Oh, what are you thinking? Roth? Roth? What would have to be Ironman branded? Uh, no, it wouldn't have to be Ironman branded. I mean, I mean, Hamburg would be, is kind of on, on my list what now. About, what about Cozumel? No, nah, Cozumel is not good. Um, it, it's too, um, it's too, it can be fast, but it's too varied. So you can, it yeah. can either be, you could get a day where it's windy and hot as anything you like the, the, when, when Christian Blumenfeld did that time, it was a freak day, basically. There's been a few though. And the swim's always like f- so fast. It's the fastest swim course in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be good. So, yeah, but I, you know, I just go back and forth because it's such a massive commitment as you know and then i'll be one of these people spending 15 grand on my front end <laughs> you can uh, you and your you and your you've got a wife i think don't you yeah two yeah. kids yeah you and your wife can jump on a zoom call with me and i'll mediate it <laughs> yeah we might need it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly no yeah so well yeah i i kind of i'm still keeping pretty fit and like i still train and whatnot but it's more i just love it i still i love being fit i love being healthy i you know, so I, I do try and keep up with, and I want to be in a position where if I want to, I want to kick into gear, I'm, I'm still at least fit enough to train, you know? Yeah. Love it. Well, I'll keep an eye on it. And and I agree that if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Enduro IQ, Google it or, or search Dan Plews on Instagram. I think you're one of the, the best coaches in the world from everything I've heard from people and, and what I've seen of you. So yeah, if anyone, if anyone needs a coach or is thinking about it, pretty good man to hit up. I would have thought. Yeah, come and join, come and join the training squad. That's where um, yeah, they can check that out. We've got two weeks for free at the moment as well. So I'll give you I'll give you the link, Jack, and you can um, I can post can it for you. Sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Thanks for Sweet. the chat, Dan. It was it was awesome. Great to great to talk. Thank you. Cool. Have a good day, mate. Yeah, you too. See you, mate.